0: It does not matter, and I really cannot stress this enough, it does not matter if it runs on your machine. Your code must run in the production environment, and it must do so performantly. For that, you need tooling to better understand your application's behavior under different circumstances. In the earliest days of software development, all we had were logs, which are still around and incredibly useful. Nowadays, you're likely to also consider an application performance monitoring tool, or APM. Observability is an evolving and important feature of any software system. In this episode, I interview Christine Yen, co-founder and CEO of Honeycomb.io. We talk about her start in software, meeting her co-founder while working at Parse, and how some of the experiences shared there shape their vision for an idealized tool, for figuring out what's happening with your system. Christine, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, I definitely want to get into Honeycomb and your work there, but I thought an interesting place to start this out would be to ask you about your journey and how you got started as a software engineer.
1: I got started when I, I think I broke my ankle in seventh grade. I was stuck at home when the entire class got to go on some like Great America theme park day and I was so upset and I spent that day poking around on my computer or on on the family computer and kind of got pulled into creating a website. And and I'd done, you know, I grew up in the in the Bay Area and so I'd I'd had the chance to go to a couple, you know, oh learn basic camps as a kid, but it was this exploring building websites as a kind of preteen that really opened my eyes to what is possible when, you know, you don't have teachers or assignments, but it's just you poking around on the computer seeing what you can build. And, you know, there was a, in the early 2000s, there was a late 90s, or early 2000s, there was quite a scene, right, of all these personal websites where young webmasters would teach, would have these sections that would teach each other, oh, this is what, um, you know, cascading style sheets are. And these are, this is this is PHP you can include if you paste it into this file and, and name it this way. And it was really cool even then to be part of this community of Random people on the internet just teaching each other things and kind of kind of showing off, but but really showing off and being the most helpful to other people. That led to more website stuff and a little more PHP stuff, and I ended up getting involved in a student-run school website effort in high school, where we at peak something like eighty percent of the students were signed up for it, and and I actually remember debating with my the, the friends I was working on it with, can we put profile photos? up can we trust high school students to put profile photos up no we can't they'd upload something ridiculous this is obviously before before facebook and and from there i think i just knew i wanted to build software that i was addicted to that conversion ratio of the the perceived effort of an individual putting lines of text into a computer and the number of people that it could impact
0: and what's the first coding language you got serious about <laughs>
1: I will not say PHP, because I, I can't say I was terribly serious about it. It was, just, it was just a means to an end. I really got into Ruby, I'll say, in like the, the later couple of years of college and, and right when I came out, I was very much caught up in the, again, the friendliness of that ecosystem and you know, the, the great learn-on-your-own materials that were out at the time. And I liked the expressiveness and friendliness of the language.
0: And at what point did you cross into
1: being a professional developer? I guess internships in college kind of count as professional. It's, you know, an asterisk internship. I went to college for CS and had the privilege of being able to learn alongside my classwork from the internships, what it's actually like to, you know, what a code review really feels like and what it is like to tinker on um, a huge existing code base and just, you know, work down a list of bugs to fix And I think that was, in a sense, that was almost more fun, right? It turned software from this thing that you build on your own, out of lines in a text editor, into a puzzle, someone else's puzzle that you get to solve and you get to make sense of and improve. Well, let's fast
0: forward a little bit and introduce Honeycomb. Tell me a little bit about the founding and why you
1: started the company. Honeycomb really got started. I met my co-founder when we worked together at a company called Parse. Parse. I joined Parse in 2012. I think she joined, you know, six, nine months before I did. And she was on the infrastructure and ops side. This is Charity Majors, for anyone listening who may know her. And I was very much on the product development side. So, you know, if you imagine the engineering team was literally laid out in the office from like back end to front end, she was on one end of the spectrum, and I like sat next to our designer on the other end. And by spectrum I mean room. And we didn't interact a ton, honestly, at Parse professionally. You know, we we interacted socially, but the only times we interacted professionally, usually what was happening is I had released something and something in production was breaking. And so Ops was literally and figuratively knocking on my desk being like, hey, hey, help me fix this. You know what did you do? This is part of the nature of the work and part of the nature of the platform that we were building. There was just so much uh, heterogeneity and chaos and kind of unexpected behavior of our users you know, hitting our API in unexpected ways that this level of unpredictability was becoming our our norm. But what came out of it was this feeling of oh man, there is so much happening out there. And at the time, we only had kind of the barest sliver of a view into what is impacting our customers? Why is this customer having a fine experience? What is that? Why is that other customer you know, messaging us about how Parse is down? We learned a lot from having to make sense of the chaos in order to ensure our customers were having a better experience. I said I joined in 2012. We were acquired by Facebook in 2013. Over the next couple of years, as we were you know slowly exposed and in some cases very grudgingly exposed to Facebook's internal tools many of them were not suited for a startup running a platform as a service one of them threw out a number of the assumptions that we'd had around limitations of a logging or a monitoring tool because it was neither i um, mean it was neither neither aligned with mon- you know the traditional metrics monitoring approach nor the traditional you know grepping through logs approach and made a set of trade-offs that allowed us, finally, a couple years into the parse journey, to, within minutes, pinpoint, hey, why is this one customer complaining that, that things look down for them? This one customer of you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions. And so when the two of us, respectively, were thinking about leaving, again, I left about six to nine months before she did, we both had this feeling of, well, this, it will be sad to leave this internal tool. Behind, because there's nothing quite like it out there, and uh, truth be told, shortly before I left, one of one of our, we tried to build this experience for Parse customers, largely through the Parse Analytics product, and it just wasn't it wasn't quite the same, and so I think we both had this feeling of. Well, we've had this experience with this tool that allows you to track down unknown unknowns, that has this flexible schema, that believes that a fast answer that's mostly right is better than one that's 100% correct. We've had this experience with this tool, the rest of the world should also. And I I mentioned I left a little before charity. I was kind of exploring and taking my time, uh, feeling a little bit burned out. And when I was ready to start thinking about what was coming next, you know charity tends to be the nexus of... All things interesting, and so I messaged her, being like, "Hey, do you know, do you know anything anyone working on something interesting back in San Francisco?" I, I'm sort of poking my head, poking my head around, and she jumped on me. She was like, "Hey, I'm actually talking to someone thinking about starting a company. The internal tool is called Scuba, so I, I'd like to build Scuba as a service. Do you want to build this with me?" And, you know, again at the time, the last several years I'd spent looking up to Charity as this badass infrastructure ops engineer. I had this feeling of like, "Really, me? Are you sure?" But, you know, when, I, when you step back, uh, our skill sets were sort of perfectly complementary. She, I knew that with her, we could handle scale, we could handle, we could make sure that we would be able to build this massively multi-tenant thing that would be in the critical path of a number of our customers. On my side, I knew that we would be able to build something that was usable and friendly and uh, felt responsive and, you know, would really marry The experience that we wanted to provide with, sort of the technical housing of it, and so I often say, if it had been her with any other idea, or someone else trying to trying to work on this idea, who wasn't her with me, I don't think it would have worked out. I don't think it would have come nearly as far. But it has been, and this whole journey has been recognizing that we're you know we represent two ends of a spectrum, Dev and Ops, and that in many things, including who, you know, who the product is for, the right answer is somewhere between the two of us.
0: Well, at that time, uh, it was very early on in the space of observability. I think the market shares continued to grow. I don't know if you would say you were first to market, but certainly early days. What were you looking to accomplish and deliver that was cheaper, faster, better than uh, the other available options?
1: Well, when we looked at the available options out there, you had logging tools, you had monitoring tools, and you had APM. And when you think about why there are those three buckets, logging tools and monitoring tools are evolutions of the technology that was available to us when we first started writing software meant for another machine. right you had you had grep, which then became distributed grep, which became distributed grep with a UI, which became a logging SAS. And then you had counters, because you couldn't have both grep, you you know, you had had to do either grep or counters back then, your computers couldn't handle that much more than that. But you had counters that became RRDs or or time series, and then time series, full time series databases, and then time series SASSes became these monitoring tools. And our point of view is that we very firmly did not want to build kind of the next iteration on either of these two product lines. Mm -hmm. Because the two of them shouldn't have been, weren't separated for any good reason anymore, right? They were separated for a good reason back then when we had to choose between grab encounters. As of 2016, when we started out, we had SSDs and we had the cloud and we had uh, approximation algorithms and we had Lambda. And we had all of these things and we had column stores and all of these things that, that were kind of available building blocks now to build an experience where you could have the flexibility of logging tools while having the, the speed that people associated with, with time series. And sidebar APM e- emerged as a way to kind of bridge the gap between logs, tools, and monitoring tools, and became their own thing. And, uh, you know, that's, that's why they're their own bucket. But we were looking at these three buckets, and we were like, they shouldn't have to be these three buckets. Each of them assumes a set of trade-offs that aren't true anymore, and to, as a result, deliver a subpar experience. Right. How many people do you know use a logging tool on their own? No, everyone supplements it with an APM or a monitoring tool. How many people use a monitoring tool on their own? Someone, they've got logs somewhere. Um, and that sucks. That relying on human joins to go between tool, go from one tool to another tool sucks. And so when we started out, we had the benefit of having a very clear idea of the experience that we wanted to provide because we'd interacted with this internal tool. And honestly, the biggest challenge in the first year or so, was not as much building the product or the technology, but instead introducing the term observability, which some companies have been using internally, but not not really in this context. And Charity spent, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> 80% of her time the first couple years just going to conferences, writing blog posts, trying to wake people up from trying to just claim that observability is a new fancy word for monitoring when instead it, it expects a different set of human processes and cultures in, in how you interact with the data, period.
0: Ah, that's a great point. It's not just the tool, it's the operations as well. Do you see any best practices? Are there ways that organizations should adopt and leverage solutions like yours?
1: I'm going to answer a slightly different question and probably get to yours, sure. which is what are, there are many signs that you have shaped your processes to a tool that is not meant for that use. I'll give an example. People, many people talk about alert fatigue or dashboard blindness. This is where you just have too many alerts or too many dashboards, you just you can't find the right answer anymore. And to keep borrowing charity's words, this is because with in a world of monitoring tools and time series where you have to define ahead of time what matters, what results is building up your ability to debug based on known unknowns right? Oh, this thing went wrong that one time. Well, we better build a dashboard around it so we can find it again. Well, chances are, if your, your system is sufficiently complex or, or, you know, chaotic, that same thing isn't going to happen again. And building that dashboard isn't actually going to help you in the future. And so, you know, f- when folks talk about alert fatigue or dashboard blindness, we're like, hey, try, check out, check out this flow, where instead you can define, instead of hundred alerts or a hundred things that might go wrong that you you, you want your team to be aware of. Figure out the small handful of customer-impacting signals and explore from there, right? Figure out, does this actually matter? Is it impacting customers or can I go back to bed? Have that be automated. Enable your humans to slice and dice and explore and, and start from that signal and instead follow their notes, follow the data, rather than scrolling through dashboards where you're just scrolling through artifacts of past failures. I can rattle off other best practices, but the theme here is the folks who wrote the software really taking part in real ownership of their software once it's in production and tapping into the natural curiosity and inquisitive nature of engineers to explore and tease apart and reduce search space to find the the subset of... of your requests say that are, that are erroring or that are misbehaving. That's, that's your task as an engineering team, as a top performing engineering team, our task as a tool provider to build a technology to enable that is to just be fast enough and provide enough kind of clues and expose enough kind of interesting um, entry points for you, the human to use your excellent judgment and figure out what in the world is happening with your system Right, this is my beef with traditional APM. Traditional APM really rose at a time when enough software architectures were similar enough. Right, you take a hundred Rails apps. There's going to be enough similarities in them where you can say, "Hey, if your Rails app is doing this, you probably want to do that to resolve it." But we're not in that world any- anymore, and so that promise of an APM sort of being ready to go out of the box and giving you answers and not requiring you to customize it or to explore to stick your hands into a graph and take it apart, that world's in the past. And we need, a t- we need tools now that can kind of flex with the complexity we've introduced into our software worlds. Well,
0: if we think about a company or a small team, maybe large team that's decided to adopt Honeycomb, what's the onboarding process like?
1: Uh, it Depends. Today, if you are using OpenTelemetry already, for anyone who isn't familiar, OpenTelemetry is an open standard that is contributed to by all the major vendors in the space so that you can instrument once and then send that instrumentation to whichever tool you choose. So if you happen to be using OpenTelemetry already, you it's, it's as simple as pointing that data at Honeycomb. For other folks, if you're starting from, say, a kind of greenfield, you've got this new service or application, you don't have it instrumented. Similarly, OpenTelemetry is a great place to start every vendor also has its, has their own auto instrumentation library that you can drop in get some basic telemetry to begin with i talk about the complexity and increasing heterogeneity of software ultimately if you're running a web service you have HTTP requests and you we can extract some some kind of basic metadata from there but i think of that auto instrumentation output as the baseline that's where you that's where you start so that you can cover your, your basic bases but the next interesting step is engineering teams looking inward and saying, "Okay, what actually matters to our business? What are the, the the identifiers that you know? For example, I as a developer would put into my tests to make sure the business logic works right. Right? If you say you work for an e-commerce site, those pieces of metadata are probably things like user ID, SKU, shopping cart ID, price, things that will allow you to really understand again." Does this thing, you know, this, this, I see this weird thing over here in a graph. Is it actually weird? Is it impacting customers? Or is it just some artifact that like lower urgency to figure out?
0: Do you find that uh, when a new team comes on board, that there are any low hanging fruit that they find just by adopting and starting to look?
1: Almost always, right? I think that this is true of any tool in the space. When you go from not being able to see what's happening in production to, Oh I have got some graphs. I've got some breakdown of errors or latency by endpoint. There's almost always some surprise, right? Either there's an expensive endpoint that is called more than you thought or or something that you thought would be expensive and heavy but is actually not not interacted much with your by your customers. That those fr- that first day there's almost some Oh, interesting. Let me go let me go adjust that or let me go dig into that. The key is making sure that it's not it's not just one and done, you know. Software systems are constantly evolving. That's what uh, that's what makes it so interesting for the engineers who build it. We're we're constantly adding new functionality, refactoring, taking things out, improving things. Asterisk. Sometimes it's not always improving. And so, again, what you what you want beyond that first day dopamine hit of learning something new is making sure that observability becomes as much a part of shipping software, developing and shipping software as writing documentation or writing tests, right? It's it's all instrumentation is just commenting your code but in production. It's how you make sense of what's happening and whether your expectations of what should happen are still lining up with reality. And does observability end up
0: changing the coding style of the teams or are you really looking to have an impact elsewhere in how they perform?
1: I think it does. I'm going to tell a story of um, some of my some of our, our long-term customers and friends at Gecko Board. I think of them as using observability in an advanced way, where not only are they thinking about it, you know, using it to deal with unexpected issues in production, they will actually look at what's happening in production today to figure out how to the, the right approach to take when writing their code or what using that to validate an approach very early on. An example I, I, t- I tend to give is a year or two, they were working on some new feature that boiled down to the bin packing problem behind the hood. And their engineering team was like, well, we could spend a week trying to you know debate about the ideal implementation of this MP Complete problem and hope that it performs well in production. Or we could whip up three example implementations of solving this problem, put them into production behind a feature flag so customers don't actually see the, the kind of impact of these choices, but production traffic or that the, the algorithms are each tested against production traffic. And then we can capture those results. And after a day, pick which one we go forward with and just move on with our lives. And I love this example because it's it's kind of a change in how you're writing code. It's almost more of a change of how you form your mental model of what reality is and what your customers want and what your system is going to do and it is a way to ensure that your mental model is grounded in reality because you know no matter how good of an engineer you are, the more complex your system is, the more likely your your mental model is going to be flawed or the more likely it's going to be out of date so if you you know doing what gecko board does you're by being by pulling production into that early stage of the development process, you are not only shipping better code in the first place, you're empowering your engineers to have autonomy, make decisions and and move quickly, which are all key. And I don't know, those are all the things that I was looking for that were key to my happiness in my career.
0: Well, when you have a client like that, who's at a mature stage with the product, they've had the early wins and taken the low-hanging fruit, and now they've evolved into kind of a, an ongoing process. Can you describe the user experience, if I'm a developer in that setting, and uh, what kind of role does Honeycomb play in my day or my weekly process?
1: Anytime we write software, we have a set of assumptions of what use case are we solving? What are the what is the kind of common case? What are the edge cases that do or do not need to be incorporated? And I think the ideal case we're building for is one where engineers spend half their time in their IDE and half their time looking at something like Honeycomb, asking questions that allow their time in their IDE to be more productive and more um, effective than they would otherwise. I can't speak to what uh, precisely. How often they're they're using us or the, the frequency. But something that Charity and I have always said is that if if people only open up honeycomb when something is going wrong, we will have failed. Because we know that the value here is in really ingraining observability and and that sense of what's happening out there in the wild into the everyday development process. And other customers, you know, we'll hear stories of of product managers putting honeycomb graphs up in an all hands to show progress of something adoption or performance or, you know, you know, scale, like that's awesome, right? Everyone should ultimately be sharing the same language and view into what's actually happening in production. That's killer.
0: Could we dive into the user experience? I know this is probably better served with screenshots and that sort of thing, but do I work in SQL? How do I query uh, those graphs you mentioned? What are the, what's the nature of the tool?
1: The the main area where people spend their time, there's a query builder at the top and graphs and tables at the underneath that show the results of your query. And this is something that we have... Um, people have asked us for years, right? Hey, Honeycomb, why don't you just, you know, I'm an advanced user. Why don't you just open up a giant query, you know, a giant text box at the top of your screen so that I can type in SQL and you can do your thing. And I have a flip answer to that and a technical and a kind of personal technical bugaboo answer to that. The flip answer there is when you're woken up at 3am, especially if you're a new engineer on the team, I don't want to be messing with SQL. I want I want the, the interface to be as helpful and as kind of idiot-proof as possible. So we, you know, really pride ourselves in building as intuitive an experience as we can. We're never done. We always have more to improve. But really making it something that you can sort of point and click and, and try to navigate around to ask the question that you want to get the data back that you want. I'm gonna go on a little bit of tangent here before I get to that techno technical bugaboo answer. Another thing that I that is Key to our product experience um, that has been there since day one, and again, lots of room to improve, but I, I think is pretty pretty special, is we try to recognize that no engineer exists in a vacuum. Most engineers exist in a vacuum. We all have teams that we share on call rotations with. That we, you know, each of us are different domain experts in different parts of the system. On the right hand of the screen is this. You can call it an activity feed. Uh, I don't like that. I, it makes it sound too consumery. But there's essentially a, a record of not only every query that you have run, where you can go back and look at the, the results of that query, no matter how old it is. Our permalinks are, are permanent. That's what they mean. There's also a kind of history of everything any of your teammates have run on that data set. So the intent here is, again, if you're woken up at 3 a.m. and you're you're sort of disoriented and you're exhausted and, you know, brain isn't totally working, you should be able to go back and be like, okay, well, uh, crap. Well, uh, a charity was on call last week and I think, you know, she, she said something about MySQL errors and I'm seeing MySQL errors. So let me go back and see if I can find the queries that she ran last week when she was on call and jump off from there and rerun and tweak and, and and iterate. We don't want people to have to be geniuses at observability to use our tool. We don't want them to have to be geniuses at SQL. We don't want them to have to be geniuses of any sort, really. We want them to be able to point and click and, and borrow other people's work because that's, that's how people work together naturally, right? You know, think back to when we were all in an office together. You had that feeling of looking over each other's shoulders being like, how did you solve that? Oh, oh, you okay i'm gonna I'm gonna you know screenshot that or I'm gonna write this down in my notes so i can I can improve on that. So that kind of acknowledgement of the team as a as a collective is also a key part of our user experience. The technical bugaboo answer to uh, why we don't have a SQL box for anyone who's who's curious. I think the experience of every vendor defining their own SQL variant that looks sequel ish but then causes you to stub your toe when you write something that should work in SQL but doesn't in their dialect is awful. It is a painful, painful experience that seems like it should be more productive and always ends up more frustrating than otherwise. I never say never, so maybe there will be a future where Honeycomb has something like that, but I will fight it kicking and screaming.
0: When I think about honeycomb, I'm seeing two groupings of use cases in my own mind. First being incident response, something's happened in production and I, I just need information. Second being more of a forward looking process where I'm exploring, you know, possible optimizations, learning about my application, things like that. Do you have a sense if that's, you know, fully covers use cases? And if so, what kind of breakdown you see across incident response versus being proactive?
1: Honestly, what you've defined are not just two use cases, but you've defined two two ends of a spectrum. When you think about instant response or performance optimization, right? Hey, I've got I've got an endpoint in mind, and I just need, I need to figure out how to make this endpoint less less painful. All the way to this the the gecko board example of hey, I'm I'm trying to get ahead of myself and, and trying to predict the future. Those are all realistically the same sort of motions involved you're you're exploring you're you're starting at something high level you're teasing it apart you're you're trying to understand and isolate certain behaviors or certain artifacts the thing that changes as you go along that spectrum is urgency it's severity it's that time pressure it's you know how how stressed is the operator and i think recognizing that enables you to to this enables us to work with customers and say, hey, you know that thing that you're doing when when everything's falling apart, let's talk about how to do that a little more proactively, which will have the added benefit of ideally causing fewer things to fall apart. And it's, again, w- you know, w- when we came into this, when Charlie and I first started working together, we still sort of had this idea that like, okay, well, ops people do that thing over there, and devs do this over here, and they're, they're just different skill sets. They're not. They're not, Right instant response and this this forward-looking kind of we'll call it performance optimization but proactive work they are the same motions just with different often with different nouns with different concepts right instead of CPU and memory and disk space on the on the op side it's uh, user ID and shopping cart ID on the dev side why do they like the separation that is coming out of my words doesn't have to exist in the tool doesn't have to exist in our teams. There's so much opportunity for developers to get comfortable in these quote-unquote traditional production tools just by bringing some of their nouns that they're familiar with into their traditional view of production. When we first started talking talking about observability, we spent a lot of time talking about high cardinality data and educating various conference audiences about what high cardinality data is and why it matters because as we build this more complex world when there are these nouns again to overuse this word when there are these nouns that have you know potentially millions of possible values like container ID or kubernetes pod ID or user ID or shopping cart ID the support for being able to reason about this more complex world as quickly as possible is what's necessary to make sense of our production software and be able to do that kind of investigative approach, either in the incident response workflow or proactive optimization workflow.
0: Well, I think about times when I was really doing a lot of development and I was heavily focused on optimizing for something that mattered to me, you know, getting out features, maybe reducing a response time. I wasn't always thinking about stuff like the CPU load or the memory pressure things that uh, someone in a more traditional DevOps position might have top of mind is there a story for collaboration in honeycomb how do people with these different concerns work together
1: I think one of the, the key learnings that we as an industry are sort of have been wrapping our heads around over the last couple of years is that the I mean we talk about DevOps as the you know where, where DevonOps Blend, but even you just described DevOps as like, oh yeah, Ops. Oh, sorry, CPU and memory pressure and, and these things. And yet we know that you know if the Lyfts and Ubers of the world are going to go on stage bragging about how they have a hundred services per per engineer, man, you can't have a, an Ops team supporting that or a DevOps team supporting that. Your your devs have to be aware of and and be a little bit more involved in what it takes to support those 100 services. And so I think that both dev and ops are having to move towards each other, devs in being more familiar with what's going on with this Kubernetes deployment. And, you know, what is the impact of my architecting these services in this way? And ops in recognizing that they can't just always treat services as a black box anymore, that they have to get some visibility into that business logic layer to understand again whether whether something is user impacting, whether it's not, um, how big of a deal it is. I know I sound a little bit like a broken record here, but so much of this is sharing that same language to talk about production, um, to recognizing where and how dev and ops areas of kind of ownership and, and comfort or how they overlap and how to increase that, that area so that DevOps or Ops folks can tease apart, okay, what is the business impact of this? How do I go figure out which engineers to bug about this? So that the engineers can quickly then take symptoms of some production incident and translate that into their test cases, repro it, and fix the issue.
0: Well, I'm thinking about uh, some of the organizations I've worked with who weren't always at the forefront of investing in observability. Sometimes there's a perspective of, look, we have logs, we have traces, uh, we have some metrics. Everybody has access to them. Why do we need to invest in tooling? What are your thoughts to someone who's a little bit uh, hesitant and curmudgeonly in that regard?
1: Chalk this up to my being too much of an engineer not enough of a of a uh, you know CEO business type, but. I think that I'm not in the business of yanking people away from what they want to use. If they are genuinely happy with their logs or metrics or traces or combination of those tools, sorry, logs or metrics or APM tools, combinations of those, great. We'll be here when they start to fall apart. We'll be here when they start to creak. And and it's it's not a knock on them. It's not a knock on their systems. It's just, it's a fact, Right. When, yeah. when you have one of each tool, one of each of those old buckets, what you're doing is you're taking the a moment in something that happened in your system, it's a moment in time, you're slicing it up into three different ways, you're sending it into three different tools, and then you're trying to probably, as a human, piece together what actually happened by piecing those like three data fragments together, and that's really hard, and it works for us sometimes, and... When you start to go into this world of, we used to have five, uh, one monolithic app on five app servers, and you can kind of you can kind of reason about that, and you can kind of do the thing where you're like, okay, well, in aggregate, I see this in my monitoring tool, and I can look at the individual log lines in the logging tool, and I can kind of figure out what's happening. Now, when you have fifty microservices across five hundred containers and cycle through however many Kubernetes pod names each day, or each week. You can't do that anymore. And I think it's, frankly, inevitable for other technology trends that we're seeing today to drive changes in how, in the sorts of tools that we use. There will be cracks. There will be frustration. I've never met an engineer, I mean, even with Honeycomb, right? I've never met an engineer who's like, yes, my observability or monitoring or, or logging tools are perfect. And I, I don't want anything to be improved about them. <laughs> there's, there's always something. And there will be, to them, I, I just say, your time will come. I'd rather talk to the people who were who frustrated. My favorite thing to do, you know, back in the day when we had uh, trade shows and conferences, I would love to be at booth and someone would walk up to me and be like, hey, what, is, what does Honeycomb do? And I would say, hey, okay, you know, have you ever looked at a graph um, about something happening in production and seen something funny and scratch your head and been like, what is that? And why is that happening? You know, Why is that spike here? Have you ever wanted to stick your hands into that graph and kind of rip it apart to see what's underneath? And I would always get a yes. I've been there. And I I'd, sure. I'd get, to, get to say, great, you can do that with Honeycomb. And, and not everyone, it takes some time. It takes some like battle scars to get to that point where you're like, I've been there. It's frustrating. And I want more from my tools. But I think that we as an industry are getting there. So I can be, I can be patient in that.
0: Is there or do you envision adding any sort of machine learning component?
1: <laughs> I think machine learning is, especially, you know, sitting on the, well within the startup hype machine, I think machine learning is a, is a loaded term that means many different things to many different people. I think that there is definitely a lot that can be done in thoughtfully identifying areas where machine analysis and kind of applying basic statistics and and kind of surfacing surfacing outliers or or interesting trends is possible. I am very leery of, as a user I'm leery of tools that that liberally sprinkle AI and ML all over their, you know, their product pages. Our approach is, again, grounded in the belief that you as an engineer and engineering team know your software best. You know what's interesting. You have the context of, oh, that was, that was a load test versus, oh, this is, this is something that's very strange. I should look into it. And what we would rather do as a tool is ele- supercharge your in- these instincts, supercharge your you know, eyebrow. Like if, if you want to dig into something, you should be able to dig into it we should be able to help. The analogy that our, our principal developer advocate, Liz Wong-Jones, uses is that we want to be your mecha suit. We're not going to try to build a droid to do your job better, but we want to give you superpowers.
0: Yeah, yeah. I like that analogy. Well, I'm also curious if there's any KPIs you're aware of that uh, your customers use once they've onboarded. Are they trying to, I don't know, reduce errors per month or cycle time? What do organizations generally want to improve upon when they look to Honeycomb?
1: You know, I talked about baselines. I think that the baseline KPIs for anyone who who adopts a new APM tool, there are some that should come out of the box. Error rate, latency, throughput. These are good places to start just to answer the questions of what is my system doing? The next level approach that I like to see customers take is really explore service level objectives. Service level objectives or SLOs, frankly, could be their own hour on software engineering daily, but the, the upshot of it is, you know, if there is if there is an indicator that kind of you as an engineering team hold yourselves to that determines whether you're providing a good service. For us, it is something like API latency on our ingest endpoint. It should be very low and it should be consistently available. And so we 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 find a way to kind of wrap that, that English in a definition of a metric, just a thing that is calculated over our data, and we attach a threshold to it, right? We say, hey, 99.9% of the time, we want to be satisfying this surface level indicator. And that allows engineering teams to actually have a conversation about what are the, again, small handful of standards that we hold ourselves to as an engineering team right? What is that our contract between ourselves and our customer? What actually matters? So that for us, it's okay, like, it's that ingest. It's um, making sure our homepage, the, the first page that you see when you log in loads quickly and, and doesn't throw terrible errors. These are more nuanced than just error counts or latency. They are things that are customized to us, to things that matter to us because we are able to feed in some of that metadata around this particular status code or this particular error message, you can ignore that. Everything else is signal full and should be considered. And honestly the best part of these SLOs is that they tend to be the result of really meaningful conversations between the humans on your team. Right? Again, this is the the you know your software best, we just want to augment that philosophy in practice.
0: If there's a team maybe they're already on open telemetry and they'd like to kick the tires, run a demo or jump in head first, how can somebody get started with Honeycomb?
1: You can just sign up for the product. We have a quite a generous free tier where you can it's forever free, no timer, no the kind of threshold between free and paid is just whether you send us enough data to merit jumping up to that next level. So if you're curious, check us out. I think that we are quite different. We're going to be quite different from many tools that you've used, and it's, it's worth taking us for a whirl. And what's the best URL to check it out? You can sign up at honeycomb.io, or we have some public playgrounds available at play.honeycomb.io, where you can just play around with the tool. Uh, there's a little bit of a guided, guided tour, so you can solve an issue in the example data set, but honeycomb.io is where, where you can sign up for an account of your own.
0: Well, Christine, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily.
1: Thank you so much for having me.